So, we've been doing a little series on gold from God, some of the great um, pivotal passages about that uh, give us direction from God, passages that the scriptures themselves draw our attention to as being especially significant. We've talked about the Ten Commandments, and then the Beatitudes, and then the Lord's Prayer, and then last week, the greatest commandment. And this week, we're going to talk about the new commandment. And then we're going to end next week with the Great Commission. The new commandment is found in John 13, 34 to 35. Uh, the setting of the new commandment is this is the evening before the crucifixion. When Jesus was gathered with his disciples. And the fact that this is his last time of being with his disciples before his departure, I think lends import to the things that he says to them during this time. So let's read together John 13, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So I'm going to divide this into three little sections and, and look at one of them at a time. First then, the first half of verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, Love one another. There's something surprising and intriguing about this command. Some people claim that Jesus' teaching can be summed up in the statement, love one another. And I don't think that's a fair summary. In fact, most of the things, if you add them up, most of the things Jesus said really do not fit well under the umbrella of love one another. However, while love one another is not a faithful summary of everything Jesus taught, love was certainly one of the major themes of his teaching. He taught the golden rule. He taught them to love their enemies. He taught them to welcome and serve those who would not be able to repay them. He told the parable of the Good Samaritan. And he showed them hundreds of times how to love by his own example. And last week, we saw how he held up the command to love our neighbor as second only to the, to the command to love God. So it comes as a surprise when after this, after all of this, at the end of his ministry, he says what he says. Not they love one another part. That's just what you'd expect. Like a parent on their deathbed who's ready to die and says to their children, after I'm gone, please love one another. That doesn't surprise us. That's just what you'd expect to hear coming out of a, a, a person's mouth in a situation like that. No, it's not the love one another part that's surprising. It's that he says, a new commandment 
I give to you, that you love one another. Why does he call it new? What's new about love one another? Well, it's clear that Jesus is drawing our attention to something. He wants us to notice this and think about what is new about this command. Now the standard answer to this question is that Jesus setting, is setting here a new standard by which we're supposed to love one another. And this is certainly true. As I have loved you, so you are to love one another. And after all, he was just about to demonstrate love in its highest form by dying on the cross for their sins. And a little later that evening in chapter 15 of John, he says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. But I don't think this is enough to explain why Jesus called this commandment a new commandment. If he had said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, then maybe that would be a reasonable conclusion. But that's not what he says. He says it in two parts, and the second part seems like an add-on. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. So it seems like the new part has a special application to just the love one another part. I think there's something subtly different about this command than anything he'd said before. And we're, our attention's being drawn to it by the fact that he calls it a new commandment he's giving to them. I think a big part of what's new is the one another. It's a new group to love that hasn't really talked about loving before. Loving your neighbor includes everyone. So what's the big deal about saying love one another when he's already said love your neighbor? Doesn't the command love your neighbor include loving one another? Well, yes. But Jesus wanted to draw special attention, give special emphasis to their love for one another. Let me give you an illustration I think will help you see it. When Paul in Ephesians 5, verse 21, or 25, says, husbands love your wives. Well, someone might say, why command men to love their wives when they've already been commanded to love everyone? Well, when Paul tells husbands to love their wives, he's saying that of all the people of the world that you're supposed to love, there is one which must be loved more than all the others. And that's the one God has given to you as a wife. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here in John 13, 34. He's directing their attention to their special duty to love a new group, one another. In the Old Testament, the Jews were commanded to love their fellow Israelites, to love their neighbors, to love foreigners, sojourners in their land. Then Jesus commanded early on in his ministry to love our enemies. But now 
is really the first time he commands us to love a new group, our fellow disciples, our fellow followers of Christ. This group is not identified by their humanity or their ethnicity, nor by any human action or distinction. This group is clearly distinct from the rest of the world. This group is identified by their relationship with Christ. The Bible tells us that this group was actually created by God from the very beginning. Remember in the high priestly prayer, Jesus refers to this group in verse 6, John 17, 6, as the people whom you have given me out of the, the world. So there's a certain group of people which God the Father gave to Jesus to be his own. It's not the whole world, but they're taken out of the world to, give, to be given to Jesus. Later, Paul says that in love, this group was chosen before the foundation of the world. Predestined for adoption as God's children in Christ in Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. And then when Jesus came, this new community gathered around the new Messiah. He called them my sheep in John 10, 27. My brothers in Matthew 25, 40. And these little ones who believe in me in Matthew 18, 6. For a long time, it appeared that mankind was all one. That we all came from the same original lump of clay from which God formed Adam. And then out of Adam created Eve, the parents of the entire human race. But later we find out that the potter actually made out of the same lump one vessel for honor and another for dishonor. Romans 9.21 So it turns out that there are in one sense two humanities not in their physical origin or in their flesh but in the purpose of God and in their ultimate destiny. One group, the ones given by God to the Son are destined for, glo for glory. When Christ returns, they will be resurrected and transformed into beings more glorious than the most spectacular thing any one of us have ever seen. And they won't just appear glorious. They will have perfect memories and perfect perception and perfect emotions and absolute joy, and so much more. Nothing on this earth is as adorable, as precious, as rich, as magnificent, as appealing, as attractive, as these ones will be. As C.S. Lewis said, if you saw one of these people in that state right now, your natural instinct would be to bow down and worship them. So one day they will be easy to love, easy to adore, easy to celebrate. But right now, they're not always easy to love. As the poem goes, 
to dwell above with the saints in love, oh, that will be glory. But to dwell below with the saints, I know, that's a different story. What makes us so hard to love is that we're not glorified yet. We're still weak. We sin. We struggle. We're still pulled in two directions. The faith is real, but the faith is small. But we must not diminish what Jesus goes on to say in the second half of verse 34. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. In other words, love one another as I have loved you. And this is made more poignant by the fact that he's just about to show them the depths of his love by going to the cross to bear the weight of their sin. Love one another as I have loved you goes beyond the who we're supposed to love and takes us to the how and the why. It tells us how we're supposed to love one another. We're supposed to love one another supremely as he's loved us. And it tells us why we're supposed to love one another. We're supposed to love one another because he has loved us and the others that he's calling us to love. Love one another even to the point of laying down your life for one another. Love one another even to the point of leaving the comfort and security of your present life and going into the mess and chaos of another person's life in order to help them, as he did. Love one another because Jesus has shown how precious the others are to him by the way he went to such great lengths to love them. Love one another because Jesus has shown no, I already said that. Sorry. Again, the key to loving others is to appreciate the way Christ loves us. If we are truly in Christ, then Christ has always loved us. His mighty, passionate love for us began before we even existed. We are the apple of his eye. The Bible tells us that we need supernatural help just to grasp how wide and long and high and deep his love for us is. And amazingly, his love was not diminished by our sin or our brokenness or our foolishness. He knows all of our weaknesses. He not only sees what we do and hears what we say, he even reads our thoughts and he knows our secrets. He knows all our garbage. And yet amazingly, his love is not diminished by this. He even loved us when we had become his enemies. He would literally do anything for us. In fact, he has done everything for us even die for us he loves us so much that he came as a man and bore the hell that we deserved so that we could escape it 
We are his chosen ones, his children. And, and God has given us children in our experience so that we would have a glimpse of the love that he has for us, for, our, for his children. He loves us so much that here in John 13, 34, and 35, he has given an order that all the rest of his children must love us with this very special love. He asks those he dearly loves to love the others whom he dearly loves in spite of all their imperfections. He overlooks their sins and he calls us to do the same. Jesus knows our destiny. And he calls us to treat one another, not according to what we're like right now, but according to what we know we will become. Just like he does. That's what this command is all about. This doesn't mean that we're not supposed to love the rest of the world. We are supposed to have love for both. But the love is not the same. Just as my love for my wife is not the same as my love for my neighbor. Those who love Christ are my family. My brothers and sisters. Even the ones I've never met before. Even the ones in the past and the ones in the future who I never will meet this side of glory. I may not know them now, but I will know them forever. And then there's verse 35, where Jesus adds, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now there's something strange about this too. We would expect Jesus to say something like this. Love non-believers as I have loved you. This is how they'll know that you're my disciples. Because of the love you show them. But that's not what he said. Now I don't mean non-believers can't come to see that you're a disciple of Christ by the love that you show them. Of course that's true. But that's not what he says here. So why does loving other Christians have such a powerful effect on non-believers who are just watching? Well, people outside of Christ, they don't like to admit it, but they know deep down that their lives are empty and futile. Often, uh, they live every day in the gloomy awareness that there's no meaning in their lives and nothing ultimate. Life isn't going anywhere. The world is hopeless and bleak. They've lost hope that there's anything beyond this. But a part of them still longs for a better world, a better place a better home, a home where they can uh, have what they're lacking. And every once in a while they get a glimpse of something beyond and it gets their attention or can. And one of the things, one of the ways this happens is when they see Christians having a type of love for one another that they never experience in their own lives. That's what happened to me. 
when I came into the context of Christian people for the first time in my life, the first thing I noticed was a kind of love I'd never seen anywhere before. And it stopped me in my tracks. You see, ultimately, Christian love doesn't belong to this age, but to the age to come. Just like you get a whiff of dinner before it's dinner time, so God allows us to experience some realities of heaven before we get to heaven. And Christian love is one of those things. It's supernatural. It doesn't come from the earth. It comes from heaven. It doesn't come from Christians. It comes from Christ. Non-believers can't have this. But they can see it. They can smell it sometimes. And it can affect them. There's one other thing I can think of, of which it is said that non-believers can get a whiff of a better world. And that's Christian hope. As we see in 1 Peter 3.15, where it talks about always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So Peter expects that sometimes non-believers are going to witness that there's something in you that they don't have, that there's a hope in you, where they know how dis despairing their lives are, but they look at you and they see that there's something that holds you up that they, and they have no idea what it is. But they can see it in us. And when they see it, they know they don't have it. And they can be intrigued. But the same is true when they witness the love that believers have for one another. It gives them a taste of the age to come. And it may make them more open to the things of Christ. You know, in Hebrews 6, 5, we're told that in Christian fellowship, folks, quote, taste the powers of the age to come. And that's what we're talking about here. I think that's what this passage is about. When non-believers witness the love that believers have for one another, they are getting a whiff or tasting the powers of the age to come. And, hope, and sometimes it impacts them. This is one of the reasons why Christian witness is often most powerful when it's done in community instead of merely as individuals. However, however, if we show people that we belong to Christ by loving one another, what does it do when we fail to love one another? It harms our witness, doesn't it? It either makes Christ look unloving or it makes it look like we're all hypocrites and not true followers of Christ. You, you probably feel the same way as I do. That it's been very discouraging the last couple of years during this pandemic and during all this political tension. I don't think there's a time in my life 
when non-believers had a worse view of believers than right now. And some of it, not all of it, of course, but some of it is our fault. Some of it's because of our failure to love one another. How we damage our witness when we treat one another so unlovingly. God help us. Let me give you a few concluding thoughts as we wrap up this sermon on the new commandment. The new commandment is actually much more than a commandment. It's a privilege. It's a call to recognize who we are and who our brothers and sisters in Christ are. We are members of an eternal family of love. Other believers of all shapes and sizes, of all ages and genders, of all generations, of all ethnicities and cultures and languages are people you will love, you and I will love in heaven more than we love our own children here on earth. When we get to heaven, we will not only grieve, I believe, over ways that we've hurt or violated our brothers and sisters. We will grieve over the fact that we didn't lavish one another with the love our Savior showed us. We will grieve that we treated them according to what they looked like instead of according to who they really were. We will grieve that we treated them like mere mortals instead of like citizens of heaven, the precious ones of Christ. I think this can be especially difficult for those who grew up in the church, who have become so accustomed to having other believers around and see their weaknesses, have seen their weaknesses since they were in childhood. For me, as I said, it was not until I was 16 that I experienced true love. And it got my attention. But my peers who grew up in the church, who grew up in the context of Christian love, didn't appreciate it like I did. For them, it was expected. It was familiar. It was taken for granted. Christians drive each other crazy. I understand that. Part of this is just our human differences. Part of this is our sin and pride. But it's got to be a big love if it's going to overcome all of this junk. But if a person is indwelt by Christ, then he is indwelt by the love of Christ. Of course, we'll never really love one another as much as Christ loves us. As Samuel Rutherford said, who was a member of the Westminster Assembly that wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith, the church is dearer to Jesus than to me or you. He has paid too great a price for, her to, for him to lose her. But when his love is in us, and if we are true believers, it must be in us, according to 1 John 4, 7 and 8. If his love is in us, then we look past all the crud 
and love the little one of Christ. Let us pray. Help us, O Lord, to love one another. Help us to see who we're dealing with. Help us to view each other as the ones Christ so loved that he gave himself for them. Help us to treasure what Jesus treasures. And now, dear Lord, as we come to the table, we thank you that it is a table of your love where we can relish the love that you have for us in Christ. But we can also celebrate the love that you've given us for one another. For this isn't something you've called us to do individually, but as a fellowship, as a body. And we thank you, dear Lord, that we stand side by side around our Father's table and we bear one another's burdens and we pray for one another and we weep with one another and we rejoice with one another and we help one another and we dress one another's wounds. Oh Lord, bless us now as we come to the table. May it be a feast of love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.